The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. If you have your Bibles, would you join me? Genesis chapter 15. Last week, we covered two chapters in one week. This morning, we're going to do the reverse of that, and we're going to cover one chapter over two weeks. And the reason is because this chapter, Genesis chapter 15 in particular, is one of the most important chapters in all of the Scriptures. I believe that if you understand Genesis chapter 15 and what God is is doing in Abram in Genesis chapter 15, then you can understand the whole story of the Bible. This, this chapter, in so many ways, is the hinge point on which all of the Scriptures swing. These verses that we covered this morning, Genesis 15, 1 through 6, not only serve as the hinge point, but they also serve to answer for us humanity's most fundamental question. A question that arises out of our most foundational problem. And that is, how can we be made right with God? That is humanity's most fundamental question. Whether someone realizes it or not, this is the foundational question for all of mankind. This isn't just a foundational question for uh, religious people. This isn't just a foundational question for uh, Christians. This is the question the single most important question for all of humanity since the fall of Adam and Eve. And the reason is because all of humanity, all of mankind are found guilty before God in their sin. The Scriptures tell us and are confirmed by our general understanding of life that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every human who's ever lived has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is um, sort of historically understood as missing the mark. It is that God has As God, which He has the right to do, God has defined all of the ways in which we are to live and to behave and to act. He has defined all the ways in which we are to relate to Him and in which we are to relate to one another. He is the one who has set the standard for what is right and what is wrong. Humanity, starting all the way back at the very first people, have fallen short of that standard. Humanity has missed the mark in how we are to live. Missed the mark of God's standards, God's laws, and God's decrees. And when we sin, we're not just rejecting God's command. That wasn't all that Adam and Eve did in the garden. They didn't just reject God's command to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when we sin, we are not just rejecting God's commands, but we are rejecting God's authority. We're rejecting God's 
um, right ability to demand for us how we should live as God. But we're not only neglecting His commands and we're not only neglecting His authority, but when we sin, when we fall short, we're rejecting God Himself. Though we may not physically raise our fist to God and say, your ways are not my ways. Your ways are not the best way. While we don't physically do that, spiritually, that's what we are doing. We are rejecting God Himself. We're rejecting His authority. We're rejecting His commands. We are rejecting Him. And that's the the state of all of humanity. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the results of our sin are far-reaching. The results of our sins has caused so many different conflicts. The reason why man is at conflict with himself is because of his sin nature. The reason why man is at conflict with one another is because of our sin nature. You you see both of those conflicts displayed for us in the opening verses of Genesis, in the opening chapters of Genesis. Man at conflict within himself, feeling guilty and hiding from the Lord. Humanity at conflict with one another as one brother takes the life of another. But sin doesn't only affect our inner conflict. It doesn't only affect our interpersonal conflict, but it also affects our conflict and and the most important conflict, which is man against God. A spiritual conflict. What our sin does is it separates us from God. It constructs, if you will, a a wall of division between a holy God and, and sinful people. And it works itself out. It results in us becoming, and rightly so, children of wrath, the Scriptures say, like the rest of mankind. Our sin nature rejecting the commands of God, rejecting the authority of God, rejecting God Himself, has far-reaching implications and causes conflict in every sphere. But the most important one is our right standing before a holy God. The most devastating result of of our sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Scriptures say if there never was sin, there would never be death. And the most obvious and visible of that is a physical death. Mankind would never die, would live on forever. Physical death is not the worst kind of death. Physical death is not the worst of the results of sin. The worst of the results of sin is spiritual death. That before a living and holy God, we are dead, unrighteous people. We are spiritually dead, separated from Him, under His right and just wrath upon our sin. That is the state of all of mankind. And so our greatest question, the most fundamental, foundational question is, how are we to be made right before Him? How can sinful people be made right before a holy God? How can we be reconciled with Him? That's the language the language of reconciliation. How can we be brought back into a right standing with Him? That is the overarching theme of the entire Bible. 
And that question is at the heart of Genesis chapter 15, and it is answered for us in these six verses. Three things from the text that I want us to see this morning, if you're a note taker, just to to help us as we move through it. Three things. The first is fear. The second is facts. And the third is faith. Fear, facts, and faith. Genesis 15, starting in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. What we see in the text this morning, the first thing we see is fear. Verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, and God said, fear not. Fear not. After these things, what things? These things that verse 1 references is all of the things that have preceded this. Abram, living in the land of Ur, receives a call of God, a promise of God to rise and to go, and to go to a land that God would eventually show him, and he does that. In the process, there's a famine, he goes to Egypt, um, deceives Pharaoh in saying that his wife is his sister so that he won't be killed. God brings plagues upon Pharaoh in such a way that Pharaoh understands that that is because he's taken Sarah as his wife, though she is Abram's wife. And so he sends him out with great wealth and Abram goes and to this land of Canaan that God has shown him, though the Canaanites are there. And there's great wealth now with Abram and his family, and his nephew Lot is with him, and there's not enough room there for both of them. And so Abram tells Lot to choose which land he would like to go and to live. And Lot chooses the land in which is Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot goes there outside of Sodom, and he begins to dwell there until there is an ar- uh, a war that takes place. Five kings united to come against four kings and they win the battle and they take Lot, Abram's nephew, captive. And so Abram, with the help of some friends and 300 plus uh, members of his family, go and defeat these five kings, these five armies. And Abram takes back Lot and in taking back Lot, takes back all of the things that these armies had won in their battle. He takes back all of the possessions of of Sodom. They're all Abram's. And so the king of Sodom tries to negotiate a deal with them, but Abram doesn't take it. He's blessed by Melchizedek. It's after all of these things that have taken place that this vision comes to Abram in which God says, fear not. Fear not. The implication there is that we find Abram in this moment afraid. God knows our very inner being. God knows our inner working. God knows our thoughts and emotions. And God knows the state of Abram and that Abram is in fear. 
Well, what is it that Abram is afraid of? Well, it could be that this vision in itself was frightening. You see that in the Scriptures as an an angel will appear or a vision of God will appear. The first thing they say is, fear not, don't be afraid, because it it, it must be a, a startling, frightening thing to have the Lord God Himself appear before you and speak to you in a vision, right? I mean, that's a, that's a scary thing. Though I don't think that's what has Abram afraid. Partly because this isn't the first time that the Lord has appeared to, to Abram and spoken to Abram. This has happened to him before. The context, I think, tells us what it is that has Abram afraid. These opening words after these things link what God says to Abram to what has already taken place. That as Abram has gone and as a a military leader defeated these kings, he has made for himself many enemies. Abram's no longer this anonymous wandering Hebrew. He's now been established as a a world leader. And he has enemies. These kings that he has defeated certainly are now his enemies. The king of Sodom, whom Abram rejected, is now his enemy. I think that's what has Abram afraid. It's not just those opening words after these things, but it's also what God Himself has to say to Abram. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. I am your shield. This is is military language. This is God saying, Fear not, Abram. Don't be afraid, for I am your protector. I will guard you, Abram. I will uphold you, Abram. I will fight for you. I am your shield. God reassures Abram that he is his protector from his enemies. What does God do in this moment? God meets Abram in his fear. Fear not, people of God. Fear not. God is our shield. While we may not have kings and armies bearing down upon us, there are still many things in our hearts that cause us to fear. The same God of Abram is our God. Fear not, He is our shield. I did a word study on this, fear not. Grace. It's a familiar one, isn't it? It's used 33 times in the Scriptures exactly, fear not. 33 times. Another 327 times, it's used in one form or another. Maybe not the exact wording, but in one form or another, it's God's command for us to fear not. This 360 times in the Scriptures. This is the very first time this phrase is used. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Over and over again, we see this in the Scriptures. I just want to highlight a few for you. Isaiah 35, 4. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with recompense. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. Isaiah 41, 10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 41, 13, For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not, I am the one who helps you. 
Joel 2, 21, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Matthew 10, 31, Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than the sparrows. And in the very end, Revelation 1, 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Abram is afraid and God comes in his fear to remind him that he is his protection. He's his shield. Not only does God provide protection, but God also provides provision. Fear not, Abram, for I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Your reward shall be Very great. What reward? What is this reward that God promises to Abram? Well, I think obviously, and the context tells us that Abram knows what God means when he says reward because Abram goes back to these previous promises of God. That seems to be where Abram's mind goes. Back to For us, what is Genesis chapter 12, when God first comes and speaks to Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the reward that Abram goes to. And again, later on in Genesis 13, verses 14 through 16, this promise comes again, but this time a specific promise of an offspring. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that... If one can count the dust of the earth, so can your offspring be counted. This seems to be the reward that Abram is anxiously anticipating, and it is a reward that has not come. There is no offspring. And if there is no offspring, there can be no nation. God comes and says, fear not, Abram, I'm your shield, I'm your protection, but I'm also your provider. Your reward will be very great. Verse 2, but Abram said, oh Lord God, what will you give me? What are you giving me? What reward? And he ties it directly to this promise, for I continue childless. The heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. A member of my household will be my heir. There is no reward for me, Abram says. There's no offspring. According to ancient tradition, if a, there was no heir, there was no heir, then the household servant would become the heir and receive the inheritance. That's where Abram finds himself. There's no heir. There's no son. There's no no offspring. There's no reward. This servant of mine who's not my son, he's getting the reward. What do you have to give me? God. This is where Abram is in his fear. And so God begins to show him the facts. Verse 4 Behold, the word of the Lord came to him This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. 
the confirmation of this promise that God has made. And just to drive home the point, verse 5, he brought Abram outside and said, Would you look up? Look to the heavens and number the stars if you're able to number them. This is another way of the promise that came in Genesis 13. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth in number. You can't count that. Look to the stars, Abram. Your offspring will be like that. Can you count them? Look up. See the stars. You know, visual helps, doesn't it? I think this does two things as God takes Abram outside and says, look up at the stars. The first thing it does, and the most obvious thing it does, is it confirms the promise of God. You will have an offspring. It will be your very own son that will be your heir. And not just him, Abram, but countless others. So God is confirming His promise to Abram as Abram looks up. But not only is God confirming His promise, but God is displaying His power. It's as if God is saying to Abram, look up, Abram. If I can do that, this is easy. If I can speak that into existence, if I can create all of that, to create a son is an easy thing. Though you feel like there are some things working against you, You're up in age, your wife is up in age, you've been barren all these years, you've been unable to conceive. Abram, this is easy for me. I'm the God of the universe. And in this moment, the promise is confirmed and his power is displayed. And what is Abram's response? His response is faith. Verse 6 is the key to unlocking the mysteries of the grace of God. And he, Abram, believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram believed the Lord. This is faith. This is the kind of faith that results in justification. Now, that language is not in the text specifically, but it is implicitly there. I know that's a, a big word. It's a, it's a very churchy word. It's a word that we don't use in our everyday vernacular, but it is a very important word. It's a word that has laid the foundation for what we're doing here in this place this morning. A justification before the Lord, being able to worship Him, and in a historical stream of Protestantism that believes and champions justification by faith. From Martin Luther. What is justification? Justification is being declared right before God. Being declared in good standing before God. Remember, that is our greatest, deepest, most foundational, fundamental question. How are we made right before God? We are made right before God in justification. In God declaring us righteous before Him. Abram believed the Lord and the Lord 
counted it to him as righteousness. This is justification by faith. Now, there are a few important questions that this raises for us. And the first one is, what is this belief? Right? Abram believed God. What is this belief? If this is the kind of faith that leads to salvation, if this is the kind of belief that leads to justification, then we've got to know what kind of belief is this. Well, this isn't simply a belief in God. This isn't just the intellectual assent to the realization that God must and does exist. That is not what it means to have faith. That is not what it means to believe. That is not the kind of belief that leads to justification. How do we know that? God's Word tells us. And James, you believe in God? Good. The demons believe in God and they shudder. A demon has a belief in the existence of God. They've seen Him. They know Him. They know His power. Yet there is no justification for them. It's not simply a belief in God. A a simple belief in God really isn't even the in the the equation of belief for Abram. How do we know that? Because God is talking to him. God is speaking to him. We've gone well beyond the belief that God exists at this point. This is the kind of belief that leads to trust Independence. Abram believed God in that he trusted him. He trusted his word. He trusted his promises. And he rested all of his dependence on him. That's what it means to believe. To trust Him. Not just to simply believe He exists. Not to believe that Jesus was a real person. That He walked the earth. Or that He did some good things. But the kind of belief that leads to being counted as righteous is a belief that trusts in God's promises, in God's Word, in that God is who He says He is and that He will do what He says He will do. It's the kind of of faith that rests all our dependence on Him. It was also not the the quantity of Abram's faith that was counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't how much faith he had. It wasn't how much belief he had. It it didn't have to do with the quantity. It had to do with the object of his faith. And he believed the Lord. I think many people still struggle with this today. They find themselves asking the question, do I have enough faith? Is my faith strong enough? It's not the quantity of your faith that saves you. It's not that there are some people who are more um, uh, religiously developed and their, their faith is more developed and they have more of it and so therefore they will be saved and you don't have enough, therefore you won't be saved. It doesn't have to do with the quantity of your faith. It has to do with the object of your faith. And Abram believed God. He believed His Word. He believed His promises. He trusted Him. He rested his whole dependence upon him. Abram believed God. 
And then God did the miraculous. And he counted it to him as righteousness. These words are unbelievable. And I'm I'm grateful to God that I was raised going to church. I'm grateful to God that, that you're here on a holiday weekend. I'm grateful that my kids are raised in church. I think we sometimes we're around this stuff so much that just the absolute weight of the miraculous absurdity is lost on us. God took Abram's faith and faith alone and he counted it to him as righteousness. Here's here's what this is. This is as if God took Abram's debit column, all the things that he owed, because we're, 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 um, we're in sort of economic language here, right? He counted it to him as, as righteousness. So it's like Abram has a, a debit column and a credit column. And in the debits column is his sin. And it's a, it's a debit that can never be paid. Not by Abram. Not by me. Not by you. This is a condition of all of humanity. In the debit columns, the worst possible debit that you can never dig yourself out of Rejection and sin before a holy God. It's as if God takes Abram's debit column and just wipes it clean. Just does away with it. Now, there's some good political examples of that that are trying, but we're not even going to go there. But it's just gone. There's no debits. And then it's as if God takes the credits column and without Abram doing a thing, completes it. Debits, what you owe, Abram, gone. Credits, what you've earned, Abram, though you've done nothing. Completed. You see, this answers our deepest question. How are we made right with God? How are we counted righteous before Him? Through faith and faith alone. He believed God and God counted it to Him as righteousness. That's it. That's the hinge point on which the whole of the Scriptures turn. Faith and faith alone. Praise God for a German monk whose eyes were opened and who began to see in the Holy Scriptures that salvation comes, that justification comes through faith and faith alone. And he began to write down his thoughts. He began to write down what he's seeing, what he's understanding from the Scriptures. He came up with 95 of those things. And he nails them to the door. Wittenberg begins the Protestant Reformation. Because at that point within the Catholic Church, justification came not by faith and faith alone, but by faith and works we're not careful, though we are protestant. We begin to believe the same thing. That it's faith and faith plus works. You see, this is the question that Paul is answering in the greatest letter ever written in Romans. 
And he uses this passage to answer the question. If you would, join me in Romans chapter 4. For the sake of context, I want to read just a few verses from Romans 3. Starting in verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Is Paul's argument The righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law, that through the law there is no righteousness. Through the law there is only rebellion. But that God has now revealed the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ and that this righteousness through faith and faith alone is available for all who, like Abram, believe God That there is no distinction between a Jew and a Gentile. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So in Romans 4, he begins to anticipate the question that a Jew would ask. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? They're asking is, what was gained by Abraham? This covenant sign of circumcision. For if Abram was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Verse 3, and then Paul quotes Genesis 15.6. Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. In other words, you work a job, you get a pay, what you do. It's not grace. And the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts as righteousness apart from the works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Paul sort of pulls out the two heroes Abram and David, as they both speak of a a righteousness by faith, not by works. Verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Is this blessing only for the Jew? Or is it also a blessing that is for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abram as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but was before he was circumcised. In other words, if it was Abram's work in the flesh of circumcision that earned his being declared righteous, then why did God declare him righteous before he was circumcised? It's his faith. It's his faith. It's not his circumcision. It's his faith. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them 
as well to all who believe. What is that? That is the fulfillment of this promise. Look to the stars and see if you can count them. Because all who believe are children of Abraham. They're all children of the promise. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. The Jew would say, well, it came through circumcision. And Paul says, no, it didn't come through circumcision. It came before circumcision. The Jew would say, well, it came through uh, keeping the law. It couldn't have come through keeping the law because the law had not come yet. It came before the law. It came before circumcision. Righteousness came before circumcision and before the law. So it depends not on those things. What does it depend on? It depends on faith. Verse 14, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only the adherent of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in Him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Church, it is faith that is counted as righteousness. It is faith And faith alone. And because of that, all who have faith are the realized promise of Abram's offspring. Galatians chapter 3, verses 7, 8, and 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham In the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. God makes a promise to Abram that you will be the father of many nations, that that your offspring will be in such number that they're greater than the stars and the dusts of the earth. And to absolutely fulfill that promise, to confirm it, to begin it, to start it, God does the unthinkable. And He simply by grace counts His faith as righteousness. If God had not done that, this promise would never 
have been realized. But the moment that God does it, the moment that he says, Abram, your faith, righteousness, he assures the promise that his offspring would be great in number and be of every nation. What's the application for us today? Here's the application. Have faith. Have faith. Believe the Lord. Trust his word. Rest on his promises. See and know and understand that it depends not on your works, but on God who is gracious. And the good news is, all he requires of us is to believe. But there is no good news unless there's bad news. And there is. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the condition of all mankind. That's the condition you are in. If you don't put your faith and your trust, your dependence on God and God alone in belief of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, crucified, buried, and risen again, then there is no righteousness for you. There is only condemnation. The good news is, by faith, faith alone, you're counted as righteousness through the grace of God. Put your faith in Jesus. Father, what an incredible moment, point in history. Unbelievable. God, the hero of this story is not Abram. The shining star of this story is not his faith. But the hero the shining unbelievable glory is you, the God of all grace. Who simply counted faith as righteousness. What unbelievable truth, what unbelievable promise, what unbelievable good news. May we now as Gentiles have faith in you. And believe in the good news of the gospel that in Jesus Christ you are reconciling the whole world to yourself. Crucified, buried, risen again. Would you help us to believe? In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.